Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in the 11th round of the 1982 Major League Baseball draft. He reached the Major Leagues in 1987, making baseball history as he joined his brother on the team that had his father was managing at the time, marking the first time two sons on the same team were managed by their dad. He led the Orioles in batting average with a 291 mark in 1990. He was a mainstay as a starting second baseman most of his five years with the team. He currently serves as a radio host for XM Satellite Radio and a studio analyst for MLB. Network. He has a brand new book out called State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. It is a thrill to welcome the man they call Billy the Kid, Bill Ripken, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Bill. What's going on, guys? Nothing much. I have to tell you, outstanding book. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. And, you know, it's interesting because the introduction does an outstanding job of laying out what exactly an old school baseball guy is. So can you share with what our audience what you define an old school baseball, what you define as old school baseball? Well, it's going to surprise some people because I think the old school baseball guy is a guy who uses numbers and information and puts all that into his baseball-capable brain and then comes up with a plan uh, to go out there and attack any given situation. And the reason why I say I think that's going to confuse people because I think that's the idea that the new school is kind of presenting, that they use numbers and information. I'm not saying they don't, but what I've, why I've written the book is I believe is because this, this onslaught of this perception is the old school baseball guy just threw the bats and balls out on the field and said, go get them. And that's just not what we did. We've always used numbers. We like numbers, but we use numbers in a baseball setting and in baseball sense to come up with our plan. You know, it's interesting because, again, in the intro, you make a great point, and I love the way you put it. You state if a starting pitcher has had a rough time going through the lineup a third time, he might might find himself being new-schooled out of the game in the sixth inning, no matter how he is pitching that day. You also state how if an old-school guy pulls him and the bullpen blows it, he beats himself up because he didn't trust his gut, where the new-school guy is fine with it because he played the percentages. So a couple of things here. If that pitcher is always pulled before he goes through the third time, how does he get better? And I go back to what Terry Collins told me in a conversation we had that he said that he told me, Mark, you know, you're, I'm, I'm close to 60. So he said, Mark, you have in your mind these managers back then. He says, there are no more managers. We are all middle managers. And you hear so much about collaboration. So what is the benefit of a manager going with his gut when if he doesn't play the percentages, his job is on the line. I know there was a lot of questions there. Sorry, Bill. Well, no, it's, it's all good. Well, let's go to the first part. And you're right. If, if you don't give them the opportunity to go three times through, I don't even know how we have numbers on they can't get through a third time. But the, my main point of that was if the old school guy's watching a guy pitch, and let's say he historically has had a little bit of trouble getting through a third time in the lineup, but there's something different about him that day. He's got a little extra life on his fastball. His breaking ball looks better. He's getting ahead of hitters, boom, boom, boom. And when you do that, there's no reason to just look at the, the uh, black and white numbers 
that are given to you and say, I got to go hook this guy because he can't get through because he very may, uh, very may uh, well do so. And as you said, I would look at the minor league system nowadays, and I think we're creating a little bit of a problem here because we're setting guys up not to even think about going deep in the game. And on the other side of that argument, the starting pitchers, both by the very analytically driven Houston Astros and the not-so-analytically-driven Washington Nationals this past year, I believe their starting pitchers logged more innings than the past eight World Series that we've had. So I still believe you win with donkeys on the mound, and I would like to see us how, how we can get back to that one day where we stretch a guy out and we don't put this thought in your mind you can't get through a third time in the lineup because I believe you can. Well, that's also interesting because Ryan brought up a fact. You know, we were just talking with our baseball beat guy, and, and we're talking about the twenty-six man and stuff. But we didn't even touch on the fact that now a reliever has to face three batters. So, how does that maybe impact the use of the bullpen? And maybe now have a pitcher go. You know, if it's the third time in the lineup, maybe go through the seventh inning because you you can't burn that reliever mm. for a situational batter in the, the with six and two thirds innings. Right, and what you could do is you could use them in the six and two-thirds and you bring them in for one because at the end the inning, right. then that almost acts like you face three hitters. So that's kind of a little twist that they threw in there. But I, I like this move in baseball because it, it is allowing guys to get hitters out more often, and I don't think it's going to allow the crutch uh, to the manager uh, or the middle manager, however you want to look mm-hmm. at them, uh, to be able to say, I'm going to go by the book and go left, right, left for these three hitters. Uh, right here because I got these matchup guys. Pitching is getting people out, both handed. And if I go back to the guys like in the World Series, Justin Verlander, he hasn't had the greatest run in the postseason or World Series un- under his belt. But when you look at his third time through the order, it's really good. And I believe that if you establish how to get the guy out early and you keep exploiting that weakness, and if you view him adjusting to you later, you can always change up your repertoire a bit to get them out, but I still think that the starting pitchers are the way to go. You know, when we look at the Chicago Cubs, they broke the, the curse of the goat uh, three years ago, and they had five guys in their starting rotation that their fifth starter had 29 starts, and their first four guys had 40, uh, 30 starts each, 30-plus. And that should tell you again, that's not too long ago. And the way you go about your business, the way you build a club, the way you construct a club to win, I believe is you get some starting pitchers out on the mound and you make them pitch, and then your bullpen becomes better because you use them when you want to and not when you have to. And if you look at the way that pitchers are being developed now with with the velocity and they're looking for spin rate and stuff like that, so with the young arm talent, there's an emphasis to just throw the ball as hard as you can, and we see some guys coming up who may have been thought of as starters being put into the bullpen, but with these rule changes and also, you know, just bringing back that old school baseball mentality you were talking about, do you think we can get back to more of, of pitching and not throwing, especially with the starters? Well, I would like to think so. And, and look, in New York, let's say the Mets, for example, since you brought up Collins and he was part of them, the separator with Jacob DeGrom over every other pitcher in the game right now is he can hit a Nats rear end low and away to a right-hand hitter almost at will. And in this day and age where I have a chapter in the book and talking about, you know, boy, they're using the high fastball nowadays to combat the launch angle revolution. I didn't know there was a launch angle revolution. And as I say in my book, Jim Palmer, 
um, Sandy Koufax, Dwight Gooden, Bob Gibson all used high fastballs pretty well back in the day when there was no launch angle revolution. But my point is, hitter has to do so much more right to hit the down and away pitch. And Jacob DeGrom, like I said, goes out there first pitch and steals strike one with a well-located 93. He has the ability to go higher than that, but if he executes and locates properly on the first pitch, you got strike one. And even in today's game, when they talk about all the different things that these guys are doing, and you mentioned it, spin rate and everything else, you throw strike one with a well-executed fastball down and away, and you're ahead of the game. And in some cases, I could care less what your spin rate was on that said pitch, because when you're 0-1, you're in trouble. And I think Jacob DeGrom does that better than any pitcher in the game. Great point. One Look at how the, deep he pitches into games, right, too. as well. But one of the other metrics that you uh, talk about at length in the book is frame rate. And, and why, while quantifying some things are great, you really point out so, the, so many flaws with the frame rate. You talk about some of the old-school things a catcher does that are more important than stealing that occasional strike. So what are some of the things that you look for in a catcher in the old-school mentality? Well, one, I like uh, blocking balls in the dirt. And if you watch a game, really sit down and watch a game. So anytime a guy can gain 90 feet, and when a hitter has two strikes on him, if the ball's thrown in the dirt and he swings and misses and the catcher doesn't block it, he can gain 90 feet. So anytime a hitter has two strikes on him, and anytime there's a man on base, anytime a hitter can gain, or a base runner slash hitter can gain 90 feet, I think is pretty vital. And if you watch a game, there's probably 15 to 20 a night out of the 150 pitches that are thrown towards this catcher. And when a guy doesn't allow an extra 90 feet, it just sets your ball club up so much better. The other things you can't measure, and you could measure that if somebody wanted to watch it. Um, how does a pitcher-catcher relationship go? How much of a sight coach is the catcher? Because he's dealing with 13, 14 pitchers on his staff. And if you got an everyday guy like uh, J.T. Realmuto in Philadelphia, he's got to be able to know who he can get on, who he can't. He's almost like the game manager, not middle manager. He's got to make sure he gets these pitchers right. So handling a pitching staff, the one-on-one bonding that goes on between every one of his pitchers that comes in to pitch to him, and the fact if you can block balls in the dirt and keep people at bay, I would value those two things way above almost everything else. You know, it's so interesting you, you mentioned the mental aspect of the catcher and pitcher relationship because one of the other great baseball books, I, besides this one that I've read in the last year, was David Cohn's book. And he talked about how important, actually, the bullpen catcher is and, and the way the bullpen catcher you know, receives the pitches in the bullpen and, and just the way he reacts. So, yeah, you might steal a strike here or there, but so many of these pitchers now have their personal catchers because it's all mental. So mm-hmm. that, that's a great point that you cannot quantify what that means to the pitcher on the mound. You mentioned launch angle, and it's probably one of the most overused, overhyped word in the new school baseball vocabulary. You make the case that it actually should be named exit angle because everyone would have a better understanding of what launch angle actually was. You lay out the case showing that even though many broadcasters attribute a batter's increase in home runs to off-season work with his launch angle, 
But some of your research shows that guys with reduced long launch angles actually hit more home runs in the prior year. So can you explain how launch angle is not a one-size-fits-all approach? Because we heard last year how you know uh, Juan Lagares worked on his swing and his launch angle to you know hit more home runs, and that was a, an utter failure for him. And explain the so many different factors that go into a swing. Well, look, I certainly believe that these guys that play in the big leagues have had a pretty good swing since they were 10 years old. I think everybody's going to agree with that. And not one time when they were on the backfield somewhere playing when they were 10 did anybody say anything about a launch angle. <laughs> they told them to square one up, hit it hard, and then your abilities take over. But my, my biggest pet peeve, because launch angle is an actual thing. It's the measurement of the ball coming off the bat. And I love the way you started this by saying it's the most overused, overblown thing in baseball right now. And I agree with you because announcers can watch a slow-mo side view. So after somebody on the Mets goes bridge, they show the slow-mo replay because SNY does a really good job. I I love working with them up there at the network as far as picking out things from uh, New York. And during the swing from the side, Somebody might say, well, look at this launch angle. This is before contact's made. So the mere fact that we're not using the term right, one, is a big problem. And if you hit three fly balls to the catcher, you probably have an average launch angle of 90. You lead the league in launch angle, and you're 0 for 3 with three pop-ups to the catcher. So what good is that? Um, There is no one-size-fits-all. I pointed out in the book that in 2018, Yelich won the MVP in the National League with a 4.9-degree launch angle and hit 36 homers. Mookie Betts hit 32 homers with an 18.4-degree launch angle. So the guy with the lesser launch angle actually went bridge more times. Um, It's kind of how those two kids swung the bat when they were 10, and then you hone in as you get older. I believe you can do more with your mental approach in hitting and allow your natural swing to take over, which may affect your launch angle. But by the way, launch angle is a result. It's very hard to work on a result. Hitters will go work on their swing in the cage, but they don't go to the cage trying to work on hitting doubles. They go in the cage to try to work their front side a little shorter to the ball. Maybe they're doing something with their hands a little bit different, but they don't really work on a result of launch angle. And I agree with you, it is overblown. You know, one of the other things we hear a lot from the analytical people in baseball is they say the so-called counting stats, hits, RBIs, wins, even average, are of no use to them. You break down the on-base percentage versus batting average debate and even the way lineups are constructed. You know, guys like Yelich and Trout slotted into the numbers two spot. And, you know, when I was reading that, I went back, because, again, because of my age, I went back to, to three key guys, Aaron Mays and Clemente. And I was wondering what their careers would have been like if they batted second. So, you know, when we were kids and you played with Stratomatic Baseball or Sports Illustrated Baseball, you had a, a specific lineup that you built. Your, your, your number one guy was a guy that you know, had speed and got on, and your number two guy was a guy that hit by the runner and butt, and number three and four were your guys to drive in the runs. Um, the league, you know, is somewhat of a copycat league this year, and, and Washington kind of veered towards that old-school you know, construct of a lineup. Do you think, A, we might get back to that? And what are your thoughts of Trout and Yellish in the two-spot? Well, you know I don't like it because you read the book, and I believe that the, the, the true number crunchers are looking at it, okay, we've got to move them up a spot in the order because through a full season they get 15 more plate appearances hitting two than hitting three. 
So 15 more. But if you hit them three and you have two guys that have a 350 on base percentage that hit one and two, their at-bats in the first inning alone with men on base will far outweigh those 15 plate appearances during the course of the season. And I can't do the formula in front of me uh, in my head right now. I got to admit guilt. My daughter's an electrical engineer, and I send her the problems when I have something like that. But she sent me all the formulas and the stuff that's in the book. I got to credit to her. But the idea of the three four spot, and I'm so glad you talked about Washington right there. I actually predicted. Now I got a couple other predictions wrong right before the pro season started. I predicted the Washington Nationals were going to win the World Series. And my reason being sitting at the desk at MLB Network, I said, is their three, four guys are better than everybody else. Now, it did have something to do with Strasburg, Scherzer, <laughs> Corbin, and company. But I thought that the three, four guys that got in the lineup and did some things, and they're not identical guys either, one hitting left hand, one hitting right handed, but their styles and their approaches are completely different, which, once again, not a one size fits all mentality in the game of baseball. But if you give me two guys in three, four spot, I'll figure out the rest. And I don't try to oversimplify that, but I truly believe that that three, four spot, they're there for a reason. And if they can do damage, and if Trout and Yelich would hit in the three spot or the four spot for their clubs, I believe their ribby totals, the ones that the, you know, the new schoolers don't believe in, the ribby. But if we're out to win games, we got to score runs, and somebody's got to drive in runs. I think everybody agrees upon that. And if you lead the league in OPS, that's great. But if you're not up there on the leaderboards and driving in runs, I don't know if you're necessarily doing your team a service. So you, we talk about some stats that may matter, may not matter. Another trend that I see happening, especially locally here with the Yankees, is a, a moving away from trying to balance the line about lefty-righty, lefty-righty. We see so many right-handed power bats. And the numbers people are now saying that the, the splits in between lefty versus righty matchups are actually so close that it doesn't matter, and you could actually just stack the lineup. What do you think about that? Do you think that there should still be a balance in lineups? Ideally, I think in a perfect world, you like a little bit more balance, but... If you have the right guys, yeah, I'm not too worried about, you know, throwing out a combination of hitters that can do a lot of damage. The beauty of the switch hitter back in the day uh, was certainly a, a really good thing. And if you have something right in your lineup, if you got some good players that can go out there and play every day, because I'm a big fan of that, uh, having watched my brother do that quite often, mm-hmm. play every day. Uh, the balance kind of means something because there's always going to be some sort of matchup problem that happens into the game where somebody has an advantage over somebody else. But if you've got some studs that you can throw out there, I'm okay with all lefty or all righty. If i got some everyday guys that want to play 150 games for me, I'll figure out the rest. You know, you take a look at the Orioles, and by the way, if you just tuned in, we're talking with Billy Ripken. You look at the Orioles' managing lineage. Earl Weaver was, you know, what if you did not, if you weren't alive when Earl Weaver was a manager and you only heard what announcers talked about him, he, you know, his, the way they put the tagline on Earl Weaver was he managed for the three run home run. All right. But, you know, people don't realize that he had table setters like Buford and Blair in front of Frank Robinson and Boog Powell. A guy on that team, Dave Johnson, who at the time was a computer programmer in the offseason, learned 
all he knew about baseball to become a manager and added you know, computer sims for his lineup. Your dad spent 36 years in the Baltimore Orioles organization as a player manager, coach, scout, and minor league instructor and was a big part of setting the foundation for the Oriole way. You mentioned something that triggered something in my mind. You mentioned a, about you know, the way an old school guy and a, a new school guy see things and, and now managers being middle managers. Years ago, Keith Hernandez wrote this book, and it was called Pitch by Pitch, Pure Baseball. And he basically took one baseball game and sat home and watched the game and analyzed the game and then watched one game at a ballpark. If you were to take two guys, you know, because originally my concept for this question for you was how would your dad you know, meld the analytics to the way he managed in today's game. But I want to carry, carry that a step further. Pick an old school guy that in your mind is the most old school guy there is, and then a new school guy. How do you think they would sit down and view the same game as it played out? What would be the major differences to them when something happened in that game? Well, look, the old school guy, number one, is going to see all the nuances that goes on in the game. And I would take my brother to sit there and, and watch that game with people. But, you know, it's everything from pitch selection to a left-hand hitter, similar to what you were talking about with Keith Hernandez, because I remember something in there about, you know, a first baseman holding a runner on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, on the a left-hand right. hitter yep. up, talking about pitch selection, and everything that goes on to the finer points of the game, a complete, let's say for better, lack of better terms, new schooler, doesn't quite understand. I thought about this when I was kind of like doing the comparison of what you're talking about. An old dog can learn new tricks. I believe an old dog can learn new tricks. They say the saying is an old dog, you can't teach an old dog a new trick, but I believe an old dog can learn a new trick. A young, effervescent, eager puppy does not know what the old dog knows. And it's just the way it is. So the terminology sometimes used by an old school guy to a new schooler is, well, what do you know? You didn't play the game. <laughs> it's not the greatest of statements, although there's some fact to it. But the idea is everything that goes on in the baseball field, the, the little things that you can only really know unless you've experienced or been around it an awful long time to see the things and how they unfold. And, that's just the way it is, and that's going to be the main difference of what goes on. Um, if two guys are sitting there and the one guy looks up there and they start putting spin rate up on the, on the um, board, the pitch could go for a homer. And they say, yeah, but the spin rate was really good. The old school guy is going to say, yeah, but it was the wrong pitch at the wrong time because he just rushed a heater by him and then he tried to flip a hook up there and the dude was right on time. So the, the little things inside the game are not seen by anybody unless they necessarily played it or have experienced it for a long time. It's fascinating. The game is so intricate, and it has so many different things that go in the game. Your chapter on war uh, wins above replacement for those who are not sabermetrically, for those of those who are sabermetrically challenged, is fascinating. Um, so before I ask you about a trade the A's made that you detail in the chapter, can you explain war to our audience, including how it's calculated differently by two different organizations, Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, come up with their numbers differently? Uh, I wish I could explain that <laughs> to you. I really don't. I just know how they, I just know the results and what I see. Um, I'm not so sure that anybody else out there in the, in the, in the real world or even in my world uh, at the network when I'm doing a 
show that somebody's sitting there with a two-win after the first month of the season. And I'm there up there in, in the fifth week of the season, and I see this guy have a pretty good week going. And I can ask my research department, I go, what did that do to his war? <laughs> and they might say, I don't know, because that's under lock and key. And there's something a little bit wrong with something under lock and key. And then when it comes unveiled, we use it like it's gospel. That doesn't work for me. But the, the wins above replacement, you said it at the end of my last statement, this game is so intricate of all the different little things that go on. And I just completely believe there's way too much stuff going on in a baseball game with baseball players to actually be able to spit out one number. And every now and then at the end of the year, you can go through the, the war leaders, and somebody's going to be up there in the top five, and then somebody from the new school is going to argue that they have a chance to win the MVP. And you just ask any baseball person, baseball fan that's been watching it for a long time, does this person belong in the MVP conversation? And it's going to be the almost the Derek Jeter vote to get into the Hall of Fame, 99.9% that they're going to say, no, he doesn't deserve this. So using these numbers, it's great. I like numbers. But you cannot spit out a number to, to tag on an individual player. There's just too much going on, and I'm just not a big fan of it. Which is why the trade that you put in that chapter was, uh, for me, a home run. Um, it was the A's trade on July 31st, 2014. Yoenis Cespedes, as well as a 2015 competitive balance round B pick to the Red Sox for Johnny Gomes and John Lester in cash. On the face of it, it was pretty much a war push. But you took a deeper dive into the trade. So can you tell our audience a little bit more about what impact that had on the Oakland A's, who at the time were in a playoff position with a very good record. What that war push trade ended up doing to that A's season? Well, it made them play one game playing against the Kansas City Royals, and it didn't fare very well after that. But Cespedes was an interesting guy because it was a situation when Cespedes was in the lineup and playing for the Oakland A's, they were virtually unbeatable as far as the win-loss record was concerned. I think they were playing at a 700 clip whenever he was in the lineup starting and hitting in the middle of the order for the Oakland A's. And when he wasn't, they were a sub-500 team. You know, if he missed a little time with injury and everything else. So when you sit there and look at that trade, and I say in the book, I get why they did it. Because they thought that they were going to win that division. They were going to get John Lester that was really good. He was going to come in and be able to pitch some game ones in the playoffs and do some damage for him. But the, the, the thing that was missing, the element that was missing, is, is this thing that can't be measured either, and it's called presence. And there's something to be said when Cespedes was hitting in the middle of the order playing every day for the A's, healthy, they were winning. And I know there's more to it that goes into that. But when my brother was playing his career, every single day. He said he learned from Eddie Murray that even if Eddie was struggling and Junior was talking to him or something, he goes, but we got we got to post today, dude, because this team's better when I'm hitting four and you're hitting three. <laughs> and the idea of that, of being able to settle in around something and somewhere provide normalcy is always a good thing in my mind. It can't be measured, and I think that's why some of the, uh, the new schoolers out there don't quite get presence. They certainly are going to argue my case about Cespedes trade for um, Lester as, no, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But when something is that glaring, 
You cannot ignore it, and you must address it. One of the things that you addressed, which made me so happy, because you are not on the defensive run-save bandwagon. For me, I think a lot of the time some certain analytics are thrown around as tools by agents to get their clients more money. For me, this is one of those stats. No one ever had to tell me that Ozzie Smith, Brooks Robinson, Keith Hernandez were game changers at that position. You saw it by the way they played on the field, and you couldn't quantify how many runs they saved. You just knew it was a boatload. And, you know, you know so what are your thoughts on DRS, and why do you think there's a, this over-compelling need to quantify every single thing that goes on in a baseball game? Um, I think one is the members of the new squad school, they, um, they hate the error stat. They really do. They think it's an official scorekeeper that used to write for the newspaper that's been entrenched in the organization. He sits up there and makes hit or error, and they just can't fathom that there is something that still works with that hit, hit or error kind of column. But the other thing I have a big problem with with DRS is the, the scale of, of what goes on. And I spent time in the chapter looking at the leaderboard, I think it was through 2018, where Matt Chapman led all of baseball with 29 defensive runs saved. Uh, chances were sub-500, total chances sub-500. Matt Olson, his teammate, was at 14 defensive runs saved with 1,500 chances. So the scalability for me on that one right there makes me kind of scratch my head. Outfielders are typically listed over the past three or four years as being higher defensive run save category than shortstops and second basemen, which total chances totally makes me scratch my head on that one as well. And the fact in year 2018, Chapman, really good year. I ain't mad at him. It's all good. But I think uh, 20, his 29 to, what was it, Arenado's 6. So if you're going by numbers and you're making a case for numbers, you're telling me that Chapman was five times better defender than Nolan Arenado. <laughs> and I just can't fathom that by watching Nolan Arenado make plays. In 2018, Bregman was a minus uh, defender at third base. And if you go back to the 2017 playoff series, when you saw him making plays against the Yankees and making plays in the World Series, there's no way a player that makes plays like that is a negative defender in any category. So the other thing with the DRS, it seems to be getting phased out in a little bit in my mind because I think they're pushing more now for the outs above average category, the OAA, and the DRS is the one that replaced kind of the UZR, so I don't know where we're going to be in 2022, how many more letters we're going to throw out there. But the fact of the matter with errors, if I can go back on that, if you make less errors than the other team that you play, you win 60% of your games. Yeah, you and that's that league-wide yep. over the past five years. So here's where I, I'm probably would – well, not probably. I would definitely be labeled an old-school guy. First of all, my opinion is – that if it doesn't fit on the back of a baseball card, there's no need for the stat. That, that's number one. Um, 
I coached travel ball for nine years, and believe it or not, I could tell an awful lot about a player on game day by body language and the look in his eyes. And I'm afraid that as organizations start allocating more resources to the analytics department than giving it to honest-to-goodness scouts' eyeballs out in the field, that the game is going to change a little bit. And, and guy, we don't know what a guy is going to do in a pressure situation because you can't put that into a computer. So what do you think the ideal mix of info is between scouts and analytics, and what would be the perfect balance in an organization within those departments? Well, like I said, the old school guy has always liked information and used information. Now, granted, there's more information now, but the information department, the new metrics department in every organization, should trust the fact that they're going to do all their information finding that they possibly can, and they need to turn it over to one said baseball person down there in the locker room, in my opinion, should be the manager and not a middle manager, and trust the fact that this guy knows what information he can apply to that, night, that night's game. You said this when you were looking coaching travel ball, and you said you can look at the kid and you can see his body language and you read it. My fear is these numbers and these spreadsheets are all coming through video and over the computer and doing this that I think they're trying to say we don't even have to watch the game and we can figure out who can play and who can't. And that's just a fallacy. That's not going to work moving forward. Lastly, not book-related, but it's baseball and technology-related, and I definitely have to bring it up. As a player who prided himself in playing the game the Ripken way, teaching that way to youth today, what's your take on the sign-stealing scandal, and what do you think of the suspensions for some, as well as lack of suspension for others? Well, they certainly got caught with their hands in the cookie jar, and I think that uh, wrong, they went above and beyond the normal sort of acceptable gamemanship. If, if I'm staying out on second base and the pitcher, the catcher puts down one sign to the pitcher, one, and he throws a fastball, I think I have every right as a man on second base to kind of try to notify my hitter or my teammate, hey, I got their signs, without basically saying that. To use the TV, to go through the video, to go through the feed, to bang trash cans, or any other thing that they might have been doing, they certainly knew that they went over the line. And maybe because the commissioner's office on the investigation said they didn't find anything in 2019, maybe they said, okay, we got away with it for two years, we should probably not do this anymore because it's wrong and it's not going to be pretty when we get busted. Um, I don't know how that happened. I believe that the suspensions handed down to Lunau, and A.J. Hinch by the commissioner's office were just. I believe that uh, the commissioner made a strong statement for the future because when he sent out his directive via email to all clubs and said, if any of this stuff is going on, the manager and GM are going to wear it. So he found out, and they wore it. (laughs) So I think that that was all a good thing. Uh, I would love to see us get rid of the technology in the dugout during game day. I'd love to see if we can't revamp the replay system. Um, I'd put a fifth guy up in the booth and watch as a monitor. One of you two guys can go up there for me, and you can see a play, most plays, within 10 seconds and see if they're out or safe on the bases. You send down a little signal to the umpire. 
We don't have to go through the air traffic controller's headset or anything else. So let's get rid of all video feed in the dugout. Let's remove temptation. Although I think the commissioner did a pretty good job of removing temptation when he starts, you know, whacking people for years. Uh, that's a strong start. But uh, they they got caught, and it was wrong. I don't think there's any question about it. I think AJ did a pretty good job the other night on the network, uh, talking about a couple of the you know his part in it. Although he was not an active participant, he said he didn't stop it, but he certainly knew it was wrong. I believe they all do. And it is going to put a little asterisk on their 2017 World Series. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Absolutely. Billy, thanks, first of all, for coming on tonight. Actually, you gave me the opportunity to break out my Brooks Robinson 69 Orioles jersey, put it on for tonight. <laughs> um, outstanding book. I, I loved it. it. It's a great read. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of it and, and keep uh, touch with you on social media or, or your appearances for the book? Well, I know the, great, the best place to do it is, like, for everything else, Amazon. <laughs> And especially if you're a prime holder, you can get it the next day. So I'll throw that one out there first and foremost. Awesome. Uh, really outstanding book, State of Play, the Old School Guide to New School Baseball, available now. Bill, thanks so much. It was a great read and really appreciate you spending all this time with us tonight. All right, guys. Appreciate you. You got it. Bill Ripken, uh, go out and get the book. Really a very enjoyable read. It's great to read it before the baseball season, too, because it really goes deep into all the different analytics that we are inundated with. And it almost makes you want to turn off the sound now. Even though yeah. Keith and Gary, they're great at it, sometimes there's just too much information, and we, it takes away from the enjoyment of the game.